Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. My name is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and this is session number 206 of Exploring the Lord of the Rings. As we will finish the formation of the Company of the Ring here tonight, which is very exciting. We all know the big moment. We're going to start off with, as I promised last time, um, just a couple very quick announcements first. Uh, and that is, uh, first, that Baymoot is this very weekend as is on Saturday, November 6th. We're having our regional moot in Central California in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, we're going to be meeting in Berkeley, California. Um, I'm going to be traveling out there on Friday. Really looking forward to getting to see folks out there. going to be a lot of fun. Um, and uh, But you can still join us. You can still join us either in person if you're in the area or, you know, on uh, as you can join us physically or you can join us digitally, um, as of course the moot is going to be fully hybrid as all of our regional moots have been this year. So uh, go to signumuniversity.org slash events and you can find uh, the Bay Moot registration and stuff. So wanted to definitely wanted to encourage folks to look into that. Our moots have been uh, really fun this year. I've been so happy with all of our digital moots, uh, all of our hybrid moots. That is, it's the, it's the digital element that's new. The in-person element is, well, very much indeed delightfully uh, like it has been in years past. Uh, that by itself has been a, has been a wonderful thing. But um, just getting back to uh, getting back to moots uh, as before. But anyhow, uh, that is my first announcement. My second announcement is just to remind you about our space program. We're coming up on an important uh, sort of little milestone uh, in the launch of our very first round of our space program. Um, our space program, of course, stands for Signum Portals for Adult Continuing Education. And that is we are about to post uh, at the end of this week. We're going to be posting the... Um, uh, the confirmed modules list for December, as I explained in my State of the University address, um, we are basically, you know, we've posted uh, a, a number of candidate modules and whichever ones student have, students have signed up for, those are the ones that we're going to run. So we're basically kind of just, we wanted to give a bunch of options and then let people choose. Uh, the idea of the space program is for it to be uh, as much as possible, as much as we can possibly arrange, uh, driven uh, by student interest. So we're going to be posting the final list of the modules that we're going to be running uh, in December based on the ones that have gotten interest. So uh, that is uh, going to be um, uh, that is going to be a great deal of fun. So there's still time for the rest of this week. If you were thinking about uh, participating in the space program, I encourage you uh, to buy your tokens now because if you buy your tokens now, you can still be part of determining which of those modules that we've posted um, are actually going to run in December. Uh, that will go on through the end of this week. And then at the end of the week on Sunday, we'll be announcing that first to our token holders uh, and then publicly um, what our uh, confirmed modules for December are going to be. We'll also be posting our uh, modules list for January as well. So anyhow, that is uh, what is going to be happening. And I just wanted to encourage folks. Uh, so like, for instance, one thing that I've heard from several people, if you are a creative writer and have been looking for a creative writing community, if you would like an ongoing creative writing workshop uh, where you can be both pushed and supported, um, 
we're, we have uh, uh, some a really some really wonderful creative writing options uh, in space. Space is going to be a wonderful resource for creative writers. Um, yeah, um, the uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, hey, hey, Druid's fine, and you get to hang out with Sparrow, exactly, which is reward in itself. Um, all right. Uh, very good. So that is, those are my announcements for today. Let us get back to the text um, where we almost finished a slide last time, but you will remember the key point upon which I stopped because I didn't want to rush it because I think it takes some consideration. And that is Elrond's sigh at the end. Okay. Let it be so then, you shall go, said Elrond, and he sighed. Now the tale of nine is filled. In seven days the company must depart. So the first question is, what is he sighing about? Before we can understand the meaning of his sigh, uh, why is it that Elrond sighs at all? Um, I first want to figure out whether he sighs at the beginning or at the end. That is, is he sighing um, in response to his conversation with Pippin? Right? Um, that, for instance, is how Rob Inglis reads it uh, in his unabridged recording. Um, when uh, Rob Inglis reads that line, he sighs in that line. He says, let it be so then. Right? He's sort of sighing as he says it. So he attaches the sigh to Elrond's assessment of Pippin's going with the party. Um, but, and I don't think that that is... Uh, I don't think that that's a ridiculous reading of that passage at all. Um, um, he has just been overruled, uh, as you say. Um, uh, who Who is just saying that? Somebody just says that. Um, yeah, uh, Aired84 was just saying that. Right, exactly. Um, but that's not, to me, exactly how it reads, actually. Um, because... Because of the, the comma, the comma and the conjunction, right? Let it be so then, you shall go, said Elrond, comma, and he sighed. And that really makes it sound like, first, he closes that conversation. Let it be so then, you shall go. He says that, and then he sighs. And says, now the tale of nine is filled. So, it is either... He's either sighing in response to what he said about Pippin, or he's sighing in anticipation of what he's saying, right, as he turns himself to the final thing he is going to say, which is, now the tale of nine is filled. Um, uh, or it is a kind of transitional sigh, right, in between the two things. Uh, Mad Violinist, I think that that's a legitimate theory. Um the sighing occurs after the acquiescence. Says, I think it's the sigh of someone who has completed a task. I, I wonder. I wonder. That's one of the things that I'm thinking of, right? Because, I mean, he says, and now the tale of nine is filled. <sighs> and now the tale of nine is filled. It does, Chris, have a little bit of a sound of my job is done. Because, honestly, he is kind of done. Like, this is it. Right. Having having hosted the council and put the company together. 
um, Elrond is going to uh, play very small part in the rest of the entire story, right? In the rest of in the rest of the outcome um, of the Ring. Uh, right, he's not going to show up again, as uh, Drosnake points out, until his daughter's wedding, uh, right? So, um, uh, so yeah, so I don't think. The more I have thought about this passage, the less I think that his sigh has anything to do with Pippin, or even anything to do with the Shire. Um, I, I don't think that this is a. Um, I don't think that this is a. An unlikely reading. Not only do I think it not impossible, I think it not unlikely that he is in fact. I mean, he could well be sighing, um, Pippin is one to make you sigh. Um, and certainly his, he has said, as we were discussing last time, uh, that his heart is against Pippin's going, right? He seems to have, although his foresight is not clear, he seems to have some foreboding about Pippin going with the party. And as I said last time, my suspicion is that if he does have any such misgiving, it is not about you know, for fear lest Pippin screw up the, the, the quest, as we know from our more perfect foresight, uh, which is also hindsight, um, we know that Pippin uh, is in fact going to be instrumental and is going to do very much good by having been there, on top of also screwing some things up. Um, but, um, but yeah, I... I um, I do, so, I mean, it, it would make sense, you know, that Pippin insists and he submits to Pippin's choice, which is very Elrond, right? Pippin has, has chosen freely to go. That's another reason, by the way, if he foresaw, I mean, if he had some good, if his heart was against Pippin's going because his heart was telling him, if this young hobbit goes with them, you know, disaster shall befall, right? If that's what his heart is telling him, then he, Elrond, is a fool, if he submits to Pippin's choice, right? Um, I mean, if his heart is actually telling him if Pippin goes, then it brings the whole thing into danger. He should at least say that or perhaps proceed with Operation Tie Pippin in a Sack, right? Because like, it's it would not be the part of wisdom for him to submit to Pippin's insistence despite the fact that he has a perfectly good premonition uh, that Pippin's presence was going to bring disaster to the party. So again, he doesn't say that. He doesn't suggest anything of that kind. The only thing um, that he talks about foreboding is that the Shire is not now free from peril, right? His desire to send one of the one of the, the hobbits back. That seems to be the only thing he um, specifically... Uh, he, he, that he talks about foreboding. So again, I don't think that his heart is against Pippin's going because he thinks Pippin's going to be a detriment to the cause. Um, I can believe that he think, in fact, it seems to me most likely that his heart is against Pippin's going because he has some sort of foreboding of danger uh, to Pippin himself, which, as we also know from hindsight, is not without basis. Um, there is cause to be concerned that Pippin is going to die. He almost dies, right? He doesn't in the end, but he does almost die. He comes very close, right? Um, uh, one of the closest of, um, of, of the whole party, I mean, apart from Boromir and Gandalf, but of those who survive, he comes closer than almost any of them. Um, uh, 
So, uh, so yeah, so I, I, and then, so when Pippin, so that would be a good reason for him to give in to Pippin's choice when Pippin chooses. Um, if his only, if his heart is only against Pippin's going because he's afraid of danger to Pippin himself and Pippin chooses and insists and shows that he is completely determined to go no matter what, then he has no choice but to let him go. And could I imagine him sighing when he does that? Sure. Yeah, of course I can imagine him sighing, right? Despite the fact that I am confident that this one is going into deadly peril, um, he insists on going and I'm going to honor that despite the fact that, you know, I mean, yeah, I could imagine him sighing. But again, I just, I don't think he is. I more and more am, um, uh, and certainly aren't crayon rationally, there's cause to be concerned for everyone in the company. I agree with that. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Jordan, but yes, exactly. That's like what Chris was saying earlier, and I agree with you. Uh, a sigh of a burden being lifted, of a great task or decision being finalized. Um, that's a kind of thing that we... Um, um, that's the kind of thing that we will see on other occasions. Um, that is, uh, remember when we saw that with Bilbo? already. Remember how Bilbo's heart was lifted. Now, that was he was being freed in, you know, he was suddenly coming out from under the oppression of the ring. That was a little bit different, but um, but it's certainly although that obviously exaggerates very significantly the situation, um, when he finally sets out on the road, right, when he, you know, when he goes from and I can't seem to make up my mind uh, to um you know, being off on the road again, right? Um, that sense of a of you know the, the weight of decision being off him, of of going past that time of decision, that is something that I think, um, I, I do believe we will see that more than once, and I can imagine Elrond sighing for that reason at this moment. Um, in many ways, I I like it better. I think it's I, th- I think the sigh is more important if the sigh is connected to what comes after than what comes before. Basically, um, not that he's just sighing wistfully over Pippin, but sighing because now the tale of nine is filled. Um, I mean, remember where he started this slide. There remain two more to be found. These I will consider. It's his choice. It's his choice, as is clear from Gandalf's encouragement. Right. Um I think, Elrond, that in this matter it would be well to trust rather to their friendship than to great wisdom, even if you chose for us. Right? My point is that Gandalf is speaking as if the choice is Elrond's. This is Elrond's job. right? This is, this is his big role. Um, he has a major choice to make here. It might not seem like a huge deal, and of course, the more times we've read this book before, the less big of a deal it might feel like to us at the time. right? Um, because the more we will be uh, feeling like the outcome is uh, uh, predestined, right? Of course, they're gonna, he's going to choose Mary and Pippin for the last two, um, but it is um, uh, it is not. Um, it is very far from a no-brainer, right? Um, has he has he done this right? Has he set things up properly? Um, his job is to. Um, well, remember what the 
poem said, right? There shall be counsels taken stronger than Morgul spells. It's a big deal, right? Um, and his is the council, primarily. That is C-O-U-N-S-E-L, right? His is the giving of counsel. And this is the primary counsel that he's going to give. Um, he has already said some fairly momentous things, right? We must send the ring to the fire. That was fairly momentous. His whole small hands do them because they must speech was pretty important uh, in, um, uh, in consequence. But, um, uh, but in the end, his choice, uh, his determining, his filling the tale of nine um, is, uh, is a big deal. Now, um, we talked about the tale of nine. I saw somebody was asking about what does that mean? The tale of nine. Why does he say tale? Um, it's a, it's a rather antiquated expression. Like, uh, a, a, a tale is like, a, um, a, yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, Gildalowin, uh, in the old sense of a number or count. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, yes. Um, it doesn't exactly as uh, Bjornasoner says. It's related to the word tally. Exactly. Um, so the and the implication, as I understand um, the old use of the word tale, is it's not just like a a, a, a random list. It's like would you have a, a certain number, right? Um, a certain number that must uh, uh, that must go into something. So again, there was he had already determined the walkers shall be nine, right? Um, and so there was a list. There was a list of nine slots, right? And now the tail, that tail, that list, um, that uh, that number uh, of nine, that predetermined number has now been filled. Um, but of course, um, as several of you have pointed out, it does, ha- it does at least serve as a kind of pun as well. Right. Because now the story of the nine, the tale is filled. Right. The tally is filled. Um, The tale is filled. But the tale of nine is also begun at this moment, too. Right. And again, I think that um, uh, I think that this is. Uh, yeah, exactly. As Arana says, when the tale is full told uh, equals when the count is complete. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um so, yes, um, in seven days, the company must, must depart. Anyway, as I say, it does connect to, like, this is the beginning of your story. And again, and that's his job. His job is to start that story. Um, he shall give counsels, right? Counsels shall be taken at, uh, at, uh, at Imodris, stronger than Morgul spells. Um, and he is finished, with his work here. Um, and I do think, I do think that that's what his sigh is attached to, not to wistfulness or concern or something like that over Pippin, um, but rather uh, of this moment when he can declare ultimately his job finished. Now the tale of nine is filled. In seven days, the company must depart. Um, you have to wait seven days because it's not Christmas yet, of course. Um, exactly, like Leobot 
sort of for good or ill, it is done. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And he doesn't know. His foresight fails him to the south, right? Um, he is in the dark as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Evil Dr. Cannon, yeah, uh, is remembering Sam's sigh before he says, well, I'm back. Um, yeah. That would be an interesting study. Under what circumstances do people sigh in The Lord of the Rings? That is, uh, I'd be interested to see that. I'd be interested to see that. I mean, there are a few sighs that I think I can remember, but I want to be sure. Some sighs I might imagine, right? Um, but, um, okay. Yeah, interesting. JJ says there are 26 references to sighing uh, in the fellowship alone. Good. Good. Yeah. Um, yep. Yep. Um, right, Chris, of course, we, uh, we, we shouldn't count, probably, we shouldn't count seas sighing upon the margins of the world. Um, well, unless we should, Chris, right? Sighing, Tolkien does very often associate sighing with the sea. Yeah. Yeah. It might actually be well to remember that. Interesting. I'm just wondering if there are, um, what kind of trends we could see if we, uh, um, if we looked at that. Exactly, Fourth Dauntless. That's why, um, uh, that's why Legolas is going to sing What News from the South, O Sighing Wind. Um, it, the south wind is sighing because it comes from the sea. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, because we, we can think of lots of things, right? Like one can sigh, one can have a wistful sigh, one can have a sigh of contentment. I re- seem to remember this hobbit's breathing sighs of contentment after eating large meals. Um, so sighs of contentment are definitely a thing. Um, a sigh of sort of satisfaction, a sigh of resignation, a sigh of relief, absolutely. Um, uh, a sigh of sort of frustration. Um, there are all kinds of uh, uh, ways in which one can sigh. And as I say, I wonder if there's a, if there are any trends, if we see some more than others. That would be interesting to know. Exasperation, one can certainly sigh in exasperation. Yep. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Um, again, I'm not saying that by looking at the pattern, this would necessarily like tell us exactly, you know, what uh, Elrond meant here. This would just be one data point among many. Um, but I wonder, I wonder what we might, what, what we might learn if we kind of, uh, if we kind of mapped that out. So I'd be interested to see that. I'd be interested to see that. Okay. Anyway. In seven days, the company must depart. Why in seven days? I don't know. I don't know. Um, why do they not leave right away? Why doesn't he say, like, tomorrow? Um, I'm not sure. 
why he gives them a seven days notice. I mean, yes, it will be December the 25th uh, when they leave Rivendell, um, a date which many have noticed. But that's in its way not a real answer, right? Because... Tolkien could have had them leave Rivendell on the 25th, no matter what happened, right? Um, he could make tomorrow the 25th if he really wanted to. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, no, Nathan, I believe that the, well, okay. Tolkien kept his chronologies obsessively. Um, so it's true that he did not write out and publish the tale of years until later on after this. Um, but, um, (laughs) which of course, uh, in our Wednesday night discussions on the nature of middle earth, we're seeing that he is kind of regretting doing after the fact. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, I, I, I definitely think that, um, he knew the dates. Uh, he had been keeping the dates very, very carefully. So I'm pretty sure that he had, he knew that it was the 25th. Um, he could have made adjustments to the earlier part of the story to make it come out on the 25th, I believe, if he had really wanted to. Um, but I don't think that's the primary reason. I think the reason has to be um, from sort of within the story. And I, I think most likely just for preparation you know he wants to um you know they have made the choice to begin and he wants um he wants them to uh uh to be prepared uh to leave um yeah time for last minute preparation absolutely absolutely um yeah um Right, exactly. Yeah, he could easily change the times. He could change the increase or decrease the time for the scouts to get back. Um, there's nothing to anchor this. There's a very vague span of time prior to this, so he could make he could have made this conversation happen almost any time he wanted to. Um, so yeah, I agree. There wouldn't really be any reason uh, to uh, to do that. Um, yeah. Um, no, we still do have a sword to reforge. Uh, that's still coming up. In fact, immediately that is coming up. The sword of Elendil was forged anew by elvish smiths, and on its blade was traced a device of seven stars set between the crescent moon and the rayed sun, and about them was written many runes, for Aragorn, son of Arathorn, was going to war upon the marches of Mordor. Very bright was that sword when it was made whole again. The light of the sun shone redly in it, and the light of the moons shone cold, and its edge was hard and keen. And Aragorn gave it a new name and called it Enduril, Flame of the West. All right. So um, uh, let me just pause there um, because this first sentence contains one of those passages. And there have been several, right? I mean, I've read The Lord of the Rings at least 50 times in my life and Throughout our discussions in exploring the Lord of the Rings, I keep coming to these sentences and being like, was that always there? Like, I, did, I, 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 bear, I, I don't know that I've ever even actually noticed that before at all. And here's one of them. Um, I think that always my mind kind of 
attached to, and on its blade was traced a device of seven stars. Um, if you had asked me to describe what is traced, what design is traced on the blade of Anduril, I, I think I would have remembered the seven stars. I would not have remembered that the device was seven stars set between the crescent moon and the rayed sun. The, the crescent moon and the rayed sun. In fact, if you'd asked me flat out, is the crescent moon uh, carved onto Andural? I would have been like, what? No. Um, but um, there it is. A device of seven stars set between the crescent moon and the rayed sun. Why? Why? Why do we have seven stars set between the crescent moon and the rayed sun? It is interesting, um, Ambrosius Aurelianus, to think about elves and men together, right? That um, uh, we've got the, the 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 stars, right, for the people of the of the uh, you know for the the people of the stars, the Eldar, right, and the sun, uh, which is associated with uh, humans. Um, so that is kind of interesting that we see those things together. Um, uh, a little bit of a last alliance feel, I agree. We don't really have Children of the Moon, uh, Barthram, but, um, but yeah, that's the first thing that I'm thinking of as well. Um, uh, sorry, who is that? Irendis, yeah. Um, Irendis, uh, Ithel, Osgiliath, and Anor. Exactly, exactly. That's just what I'm thinking of as well. Um, seven stars set between the crescent moon and the rayed sun. Um, that is exactly maps directly onto the ancient Numenorean cities of Gondor, right? Minas Ithil, the tower of the moon, Minas Anor, the tower of the setting sun, and Osgiliath, the citadel of the stars, in between them. Right? Um, I, that's, now, I, could it mean other things? Yes. It absolutely can have more than one meaning. I don't think that they're, uh, uh, the elves restrict themselves to purely one-to-one symbols. Um, but that seems to me really appropriate. Right? And of course, um, you know, the Tower of the Crescent Moon has fallen on uh, well, the the citadel of the stars have fallen has fallen on hard times. The citadel of the moon has, or, you know, the tower of the moon has fallen on much harder times. Right since then, uh, so it's not exactly, um, it's not exactly the uh, uh, like, hey, this is for Gondor, right? This is a memory of ancient Gondor, right? Which, of course, also maps. Onto, um, which also maps onto the sword itself and Aragorn himself, right? Aragorn is the renewer. He is the one who is going to renew Gondor and return it to its glory of old. So he will be, you know, no, it's not like that now, right? Yeah, the moon and the stars, not so much. Uh, and even the sun, it's not even Minas Anor anymore. There's only one of the three of them left, and it's not even called that now, right? It's called Minas Tirith, uh, the Tower of Guard, because of the war. But um, 
But he is going to be the renewer. He is going to renew Gondor of old, just, of course, as the, as the sword itself has been renewed. The sword which was the sword of Elendo and is now being forged anew to be the sword of Aragorn, the original king and the last king, right? So, um, uh, so yeah, yeah, uh, and, and exactly, and the kingly line as well. So we've got that uh, pattern of renewal in the sword itself, in the kingship itself, and in the kingdom of Gondor as well. That maps out pretty well so that it shows... Gondor, the greatness of Gondor that was, and of course anticipates the greatness of Gondor that is to be. I think that that works, um, that that works really well. Um, but I also do think that there's more. I, somebody I missed who that was, um, talks about the, um, uh, oh, who is it who said that? Um, that it's also a tale of nine, right? The sun and the moon and seven stars, right? There's, there's, there's. They put nine heavenly bodies there uh, on the uh, on the sword as well, which is pretty cool, right? I, I, I like that. I like that. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, exactly. I do think the seven stars do make me think also um of the Valakirka, um of the um uh the the sickle of the Valar, right? Um does anybody remember? When did the Valakirka come up? When did we see the sickle of the Valar? Just in this book? We just got it. We were just reminded of it, right? When did we see the sickle of the Valar? Yes! Hathalas, you've got it! <clears throat> Good, and JJ was just quoting it. Um, uh, Bree. At Bree. They see it above Bree Hill. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yep. Yep, we are reminded before our encounters with the ringwraiths in the wilderness um, of the sickle of the Valar that is hanging in the northern sky as a warning to Morgoth. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yep. So uh, I suspect, I, I, and of course the seven stars are, are associated with Numenor, right? So you've got the Numenorean stars and you've got uh, the crescent moon and the raid sun. Again, the moon and the sun, of course, in addition to being, I, I heard, you know, people were saying, which I was thinking as well, of course, that it's, uh, could also be associated with the trees, right? You got the moon and the sun standing on either side, like, um, you know, like Laurelin and Telperion, well, Telperion and Laurelin, respectively, um, associated with those that it seems to me a little bit of a weaker association just because like, we don't have anything tree-ish uh, explicitly alluded to here. Um, so it's, it's a very indirect kind of connection. Um, but, um, uh, but I think it works. Why a crescent moon? Um, I believe if I'm, re if I'm remembering correctly, um, the symbol of Minas Ithil was a crescent moon. That's one of the main reasons that I'm thinking of Minas Ithil there, first and foremost, um, because it was, I mean, it was not, uh, it was not, 
like you know the 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 full moon was not the sign of uh, uh, of Minas Ithil. I don't know that it's a waxing or whether it's a waxing or waning crescent. Uh, that is perhaps a little. Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure. We're not told. We're not told which crescent it is. Um, uh, yeah, I agree. The full moon is just a circle, which does make kind of a boring symbol. Um, uh, yeah. Whereas with the sun, at least you get the rays. I'm trying to remember if there's any ever any reference as to whether it's associated with a waxing or waning crescent, but I don't recall any reference to it. Um, I know that Minas Anor is called the Tower of the Setting Sun, um, specifically. But... Um, yeah. Yeah. Don't know about the about the moon. Um but what's kind of backing up from the symbols specifically. The sword of Elendil was forged anew by elvish smiths, and on its blade was traced a device of seven stars set between the crescent moon and the rayed sun, and about them was written many runes. For Aragorn, son of Arathorn, was going to war upon the marches of Mordor. You know what my favorite word is in that sentence? The conjunction. For. And about them was written many runes. For Aragorn, son of Arathorn, was going to war. Like, that is so awesome, right? I mean, why did they... Not, it's like answering the implicit question. Um... Why did they carve many runes about the, you know, about these symbols? Like, on the blade of the sword. Why did they carve many runes on the blade of this sword? Well, for Aragorn, son of Arathorn, was going to war upon the marches of Mordor. Um, you know, that is... Um, I don't know. I just love that. I just love that. Um... Aragorn, son of Arathorn, is going to war upon the marches of Mordor. This sword, he's been carrying this sword around, for all we know, for his entire adult life, right? He's been carrying it around as a symbol. It's useless, right? Not much use, is it, Sam? He says to Sam, right, when he draws his broken sword in Bree. Um, but now... He is going to war upon the marches of Mordor. And therefore, they there are many written runes about those devices on his sword. And notice his naming as well. For Aragorn, son of Arathorn, was going to war upon the marches of Mordor. His uh, ranger name, right? His, his chieftain of the rangers name. Um, not Aragorn heir of Elendil, not Aragorn heir of Isildur, um, uh, not Aragorn future king of Gondor. Aragorn, son of Arathorn, was going to war upon the marches of Mordor. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
I wonder, Chris, I wonder if we do see a little bit of uh, Findegill King's writer creeping in here. Uh, do we think that this sentence was one of those that was changed or added later on? Well, I, Frodo would certainly mention this, right? He would certainly mention this. I don't know. I'm wondering. It's almost too understated. That's what I'm wondering. That's that's my that's my my biggest concern. Silk Westcott thinks the alliteration is a dead giveaway. Um. Yeah, yeah. Um. Maybe. It's pretty understated, though. I mean, Aragorn, son of Arathorn, sure. Um, but I mean, you know, his name is... That's a freebie from an alliteration standpoint. Um, Marches of Mordor, yeah. Yeah, but... Eh. Um, it could kind of work. But... The thing, here's the thing that makes me think, if, if I had to make the argument, if I were, if I were like hired to defend the proposition in court that Findegill King's writer had interpolated this sentence or part of this sentence, I would, I would base my case on the phrase was going to war upon the marches of Mordor. That's where I would base my case because... Um, I wouldn't think that Frodo would necessarily think that way. Right? I, I don't think that either Frodo or Sam would necessarily think that way about what Aragorn is preparing to do. They know he's going to Minas Tirith, right? They might even be thinking of him, you know, going to achieve his birthright or something like that. But... That he is going to war upon the marches of Mordor sounds kind of uh, hindsight slash origin story to me, right? I mean, it's very, it is very epic, Kurtzimus. Um He is going to end up going to war upon the marches of Mordor. That is, in fact, what he's going to end up doing. And so he is, in fact, setting out on the journey which is going to end with him going to war upon the marches of Mordor. He's going to invade Mordor itself. Um, but I'm still not sure that that's the primary association that either Frodo or Sam would have um, with his setting off. Um, and I don't just mean because they weren't there, though that's part of it, in the sense that that's not what they would mainly associate him with. Um, it's just that I could imagine somebody I could imagine a Gondorian envisioning Aragorn's setting out. I mean, think about it, right? Think about when Theoden sets out from Dunharrow and we get the song. Right? Remember ahead to that? 
right? Um, From Dark Harrow in the Dim Morning, right? Remember that song? We get, we interrupt this narrative, right, to give you um, a heroic lay written in later years about this moment, because this moment was like super important in retrospect for the Rohira, right? When Theoden set out from Dunharrow. Um, but at the moment, it doesn't seem like all that much, right? Not nearly as much as it sounds like in the song, I'm sure, right? Um, there's a, and, and there strikes me as a kind of a parallel here. Um, from the Gondorian perspective, they would think about his departure from Imladris. He's headed to them, right? Um, the What are the things that Aragorn is going to do? is going to accomplish. Like, what is the point of him, you know, on this quest? What's his role going to be in this quest? Um, well, again, if you're a Gondorian, there's no question, right? Um, you're going to war. He is coming to war. He is going to come and deliver Minas Tirith in its hour of need, in the war that is coming. And then, having delivered them... Uh, in their darkest hour, he is then going to lead them into an assault on the Black Land, which, bear with me, is going to succeed, right? I mean, that, that is the road that Aragorn is setting out on from the Gondorian perspective, right? But it's a little harder for me to imagine, frankly, um, any of the hobbits necessarily thinking of it this way. But I do agree with you Fourth Dauntless, that it is explicitly in his plan. And we talked about this in conjunction with the sword and the forging again of the sword of Elendil. Like, remember when we talked about back in the council, um, we talked about the significance of the sword that was broken, right? What does the sword that was broken mean? What does the sword of Elendil mean? Mean what is the significance not only of it as a sword? It's not just an heirloom of the um, of the great king, um, but it is also the broken sword, right? It is the sword of the king who died in battle, who sacrificed himself for in order to throw down with Sauron, right? In fighting against Sauron, <clears throat> who gave his life. In his attempt, alongside Elendil, or sorry, alongside Gilgalad, uh, to um, try to take down Sauron, right? And that that's what we talked about. That's what Aragorn is pledging himself to, right? He is pledging himself to taking up the sword of Elendil, which doesn't mean now I get to be king, right? It is not at all like that, frankly, slightly silly scene in the Paths of the Dead. There are several. The Paths of the Dead are rather a silly place uh, in the Peter Jackson film. I can't help but think. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, that moment with, like, you know, when it's only the sword of the king that identifies him and whatever. Um, it's kind of fun in the movie. Like, if you don't actually know anything about Aragorn's sword, it's a fun moment. Um but the sword of Elendil, of course, means a great deal more than that. It is not a sign of his birthright. It is not the justification of his uh, of his kingship. It is his pledge, his duty, his undertaking to bring war to Mordor. When he does lead the armies of the West to the Black Gate, he is doing it 
exactly right. Right. He's doing it exactly right. Um, um, exactly, Fourth Donalus. You do not, in fact, get to wield supreme executive power uh, just because some weedy elf threw a sword at you. Yeah, that's that is not, in fact, how it works. Um, yes, yes. Um, interesting. So Chris is saying, for him, it's the language around the description of Andoral. The word order reminds me of the phrase "long spears and bitter," which is used to describe the skill of the Rohirrim on uh, Pelennor Field. It's the same sort of heroic register, and not something we see in most of the narrations we can easily associate with the Hobbits. Um, yes. Yes. Kurtzimus uh, was also saying that it has the same sound as Arwen's introduction to me. Uh, yes, that's the passage I was remembering uh, back to most specifically Kurtzimus when I was thinking about the uh, the Findigil question. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, I think so. Um, it sounds a little... It sounds a little bit less... It, I think the Arwen introduction is like a smoking gun. As far, I mean, I, that that is uh, that says Findigil up one side and down the other. I mean, I, I um, and I don't feel the same way about this. Um, I think it's possible. I think it's possible. I'd even I'd even go with likely. Um, again, the was going to war upon the marches of Mordor. Um, uh, and I hear you, Chris, about the word order. On its blade was traced a device of seven stars set between the crescent moon and the rayed sun, and about them was written many runes. It's not quite so stylized, though, as, um... Uh... Yeah, very bright was that blade. Okay, yeah. Very bright was that sword when it was made whole again. The light of the sun sun shone redly in it. Okay, Chris, you're right. I should keep reading. Because that is more like it, right? And the light of the moon shone cold, and its edge was hard and keen. And Aragorn gave it a new name and called it Andural, Flame of the West. Yeah, you're right. I was looking at that one sentence, but you're right. It's the next sentence that sounds more stylistically more like Findigil. Very bright was that sword when it was made whole again. The light of the sun shone redly in it, and the light of the moon shone cold, and its edge was hard and keen. By the way, I just... That, um... Uh... That image, made whole again. Again, from a Gondorian standpoint, can you feel the... Can you feel the wistfulness there? Right? You feel a little tear starting in the corner of your eye, right? The sword was made whole again. And of course, remember, this, when it's made whole, it's got these devices which recall the glory of Gondor of old upon it, right? So, you know, as the sword is being made whole, uh, so Aragorn, he is going to be the renewer, right? He is going to make Gondor whole again, not only in the sense of pulling its biscuits out of the fire at the Battle of Pelennor Field, but in the sense of renewing the kingship and the glory of old, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yep. No, I, um, I agree. I agree. My, I bet you, I, here, here would be my specific, my specific guess, 
my specific guess would be that Frodo had written, he wrote the beginning and the end of this paragraph. Like, he had written a paragraph describing this. The Sword of Elendil was forged anew by Elvish Smiths, um, and he might even have noted what was traced on the blade, right? Um, and then the end, and Aragorn gave it a new name and called it Andural Flame of the West. I think it probably, Frodo's original paragraph probably started that way and probably ended that way, right? But that Findigil thought it, um, it needed a, a little bit more in the middle, right? Um, and he expands. Very bright was that sword when it was made whole again. The light of the sun shone redly in it, and the light of the moon shone cold. Um, I love the um, the lack of parallelism there. The light of the sun shone redly, and the light of the moon shone cold. Right? Um, I, like, it's not redly and whitely, right? Or the light of the sun shone hot in it and the light of the moon shone cold or something than that. Um, I mean, it's... Uh, uh, he could have been consistent in one way or another, but he's not consistent in one way or another. Um, and, uh, and yeah, Mad Violinist, you're right, it is kind of like two lines from a poem. The light of the sun shone redly in it, and the light of the moon shone cold, and its edge was hard and keen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I agree, JJ, they're not parallel opposites, but there is an opposition there. Yes. Yes. I agree. I agree. Um, and it conveys both, right? It manages to convey both, both color and temperature, right? Um, and Aragorn gave it a new name and called it Anduril, Flame of the West. What do you think of the name? Flame of the West. Yeah, it's a capital W, clearly. Um, but of course, the West in The Lord of the Rings, when we're talking about the Silmarillion, right, the West always means Valinor, right? But in The Lord of the Rings, the West has a triple meaning, really, right? Because on the one hand, it means Numenor, right? Clearly, Westerness. Um, so it is the flame of Westerness. It is the Numenorean sword, right? It is also the flame of the West in the sense that it is the champion of the West of Middle-earth as against the East of Middle-earth, right? I mean, um, uh, Mordor being the East and the Free Peoples being the West, that is also a way in which the West is used frequently in the Lord of the Rings. And then, of course, there's still the West, beyond the West, right? There is still the utter West uh, that lies there and still does, is not wholly forgotten about, right? Um, so he is the descendant of Westerness, right? He is the champion of the West against the East and in service of the 
utter west, right? Uh, in submission to the utter west. Exactly, Chris. We look to Numenor that was and to Elvenholm that is and beyond that to that which ever shall be. Um, exactly. Exactly. Yes. Uh, that's, of course, Faramir uh, in Hanetha Noon um, explaining why they look to the west uh, before mealtime. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. Um, so it's a very, it's a like associating it with the West accomplishes a whole bunch of different things. Um, why flame do you think? I, I always find it very interesting because he's just associated associated it with coldness right i mean warmth too with the light of the sun shining redly in it right but the light of the moon shines cold like it has both right fire and cold it has both um you know both 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 the red and the white both the sun and the moon um the sun moon and stars are all represented there amidst the runes um in uh, uh, on the blade of the sword, um, and yes, uh, Frumius Bujum, it clearly does literally give off light. Yeah, no, that's right, that's right. Um, yeah, it, it, here it's not clear, right? It sounds like it could very likely be a reflection. The sun, the light of the sh- sun shone redly in it. Like when you hold it up in the sun, it's like wow, right? Um, it's kind of what it sounds like, but no, um, the light of the sun is in it like sunlight comes out of it sometimes and moonlight comes out of it apparently sometimes as well um uh and that's of course perfectly natural right um because um oh and not natural well yeah it is natural um it's just what you would expect is what i mean uh because look what's on it. The sun and the moon are, are on it, and about them was written many runes. Um, and as Haldir is going to explain, um, you know, the elves put the, th- uh, the thought of all they love into all they make. Um, it, it, it's... They put the thought of the light of the sun and the light of the moon into the reforging of the sword, right? Um... I mean, it's it's the sword is just like it says on the tin. Right? I mean, it's got the it's got the stars and the, uh, uh, the it's got the the Valakirka, It's got the crescent moon and the rayed sun. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, no, it definitely glows. Not like Sting. Not like Sting. Um, uh, it doesn't like you don't just like pull it from its sheath and it's glowing in the presence of orcs. Um that's different, right? Because again, why is it different? Because of why it was made, right? What was in the heart of the makers when they made it, right? Um, the Those blades from Gondolin um, burn with the anger of the elves, right? The hatred of the elves against the orcs, specifically. Um yeah, yeah. Um, uh, 
Yes. Uh, the flame of the West. Hmm. So several of you were asking about the um, uh, the flame imperishable. I don't think so. I mean, it's not like Tolkien has forgotten the flame imperishable, but I don't think so. Um, that's um, that's rather distant. I think the meaning of it is more present. Um, we do have, as JJ was recalling, from the ashes a fire shall be woken. So, is he m- making an illusion? in the name of the sword itself to Bilbo's poem, which he has already embraced, right? Um, you know, I am Aragorn and those verses go with that name, he says, right? Um, so from the ashes of fire shall be woken. Uh, the refor- This moment of the reforging of the sword, like, it, it's, it's happening, right? It's happening. The fire is being awoken from the ashes. The light from the darkness is springing. Here it is, right? Watch it spring uh, from the sword. Um, this is, you know, Aragorn is certainly very aware of the symbolic significance of that. So is that what he's thinking? Um, uh, I th- Yes, I think that that is what he's thinking. The main reason I don't think it has anything to do with the flame imperishable is that I think that Aragorn is both too smart and also too humble for that. I don't think that Aragorn in this moment is like, and I shall name my sword after the creative power of God himself. Like, no, I don't think that's what Aragorn's thinking. Um, He would be foolish to be thinking that. Um, It would be, that would be a red flag uh, if he were thinking that, frankly. Uh, I I, I think, in my opinion, it would be. Um, But um, uh, anyway, so, um, but here's another thing that I can't help but remember. Um, Aragorn's words about fire and the ringwraiths. Remember that uh, the nine walkers are being set against the nine riders who are evil, right? Um, and fire is your friend in the wilderness, as Strider said. Um, Strider uh, entered, you know, he uh, came in with a torch in either hand, right? Um, and, uh, you know, Sauron can put fire to his uh, you know, to his evil uses, um, but his sir, but these wraiths do not love it, right? Um, these riders do not love it. Is he also so? Is he kind of on the one hand leaning into Bilbo's poem, but on the other hand also leaning into <clears throat> the symbolism which um, Elrond has already decreed that the nine walkers shall be set against the nine riders that are evil. Um, he is. <clears throat> corresponding to them, right? Um, and uh, opposing them. And so he's going to do it with exactly J.J., a burning stick in his hand. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so exactly, Aranas. If he's going to stand at the front of the battle, he will want something to inspire fear in the enemy and rally the allies. Yep, absolutely. Um could it be the flame of honor? Well, yes. Except, so, but here's here's my problem with that. My only problem with that is that um, that would be seeming to show favoritism. Like the 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 sword has a pretty egalitarian sun moon thing going on, right? And so, for him to name it after the sun would seem to be choosing favorites among the celestial bodies that are engraved upon the sword, and that would kind of not seem right. Um, 
I'm being a little bit flippant about that, but do you see what I mean? Like the 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 balance of sun and moon, of redly shining and coldly shining, right? Um, uh, seems to that seems to be an important part of the essence of the sword, right? Um, which is why I don't associate it necessarily exclusively with the flame of the sun, because that would be sliding to the moon, and that would be mean. Um, yeah. And his claim is from the line of the Tower of the Moon. Exactly. He is the heir of Isildur, after all. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, yeah. Oh, interesting. Fourth Dauntless says, I'm also reminded of the light that lingered in the West in Boromir's dream. Um, there the light is pale, but Andural gives off pale light as well, lingering hope and hope rekindled. Certainly with hope rekindled. Um, and again, that goes back to Bilbo's song, right? Um, by the way, how awesome is it, right, that the poem that Bilbo made, like, if if Aragorn is actually thinking of Bilbo's poem, what a wonderful compliment, right, to Bilbo, right, that uh, the great sword of the king, the sword of the king which is going to, if we're right, lead Findegil King's writer to interpolate this whole poetic passage describing uh, the brightness of the sword, right? Because he just can't stop himself. And those hobbits, again, though they mean well, they really do. There are just some things that they, um, they undersell, right? They undersold the reveal of Arwen. Cause I mean, come on, right? Like we got to say a little bit more about the queen than that. And now he's underselling the reforging of the sword. Big deal. Right. This is a big deal. So we need to insert some Gondorian poetry into it. Um, but anyway, that 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 the name of that sword, the sword of legend, uh, is inspired by perhaps even um, at the very least influenced, perhaps by the poem that Bilbo wrote for him on the day that Aragorn told him about himself. That's um that's really fun. Uh, that's really uh, uh, adorable, right? Um, and JJ, you're right. Aragorn is going to use Strider as his house name. He's not exactly shying away uh, from those uh, kinds of associations. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And Jordan, I agree. I do think like the sword of Gondor restored or even like the, the restoration of Gondor does seem to be... Um, the overall theme of the sword. I, I agree. I think that that's the most, uh, the most important, the most important thing. Aragorn and Gandalf walked together or sat speaking of their road and the perils they would meet. And they pondered the stories and figured maps and books of lore that were in the house of Elrond. Sometimes Frodo was with them, but he was content to lean on their guidance. And he spent as much time as he could with Bilbo. Notice two things. First, Notice who's not there. Notice who's not part of these powwows, as far as we can tell. Chris, exactly. Elrond. <laughs> Pippin, right, Pippin's not there. Elrond is not there. Elrond is not advising them. Aragorn and Gandalf are making their plans. Chris, exactly. Elrond, is, he's done. He's done. His job is finished. 
<laughs> it's, it's so quest gets says Elrond is so done. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I am tempted to take it as more evidence about his sigh. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, he's Elrond is supplying the maps, right? Uh, but um, um, yes, I think that that's interesting. Here's the other thing that I think interesting about this. Um, Frodo's contentment, right? Content, I think, is a really interesting word here. Sometimes Frodo was with them, but he was content to lean on their guidance, and he spent as much time as he could with Bilbo. Um, Frodo is happy to let them lead. Frodo submits. <clears throat> Kendall, I'm not sure if Frodo is actively trusting to fate here, but I'm inclined to interpret this as a good sign on Frodo's part. I'm, I... Remember what's his job, right? Remember his job. His job is to be the small hands that take the ring to Mordor. He's not um, accomplishing quests. That's not what he's supposed to be doing. The very fact that his feeling at this time is there are better qualified people who are taking care of these things. I'm not going to take it upon myself to worry about it. I I tend to think it um, is a good sign for Frodo. It's he is bo- both the faith that he's showing, the trust that he's showing to Gandalf and Aragorn, and the humility that he's showing, right? He's, if he were like, okay, folks, I'm the ring bearer and I'm calling the shots, right? I've got to be, like, I-, I need to be on top of everything. Like, brief me, please. And then I'll, you know, like, I- obviously I'm the one in charge here. That would be a bad sign, right? That That would be... Uh, that would be a bad sign, I think. Um, and so, therefore, I'm not... I mean, I feel very confident that that would be a bad sign if that were his attitude at this point. Um, and so, therefore, I am inclined to think that his um, trust, his willingness to trust, his contentment to lean on the guidance of Gandalf and Aragorn is, I think, a good sign. Um, also, I think his avoidance is a good thing, honestly. His avoidance of speaking of their road and the perils they would meet. He could be spending his last six days in Rivendell um, thinking about the dangers that are going to lie ahead. Um, But I don't think that would be the best thing for him to be doing, right? The best best usage of his time. Um, I think we've got a fair bit of evidence, right? People are continuing to try to cheer him up, to keep him from thinking gloomy thoughts. And so that he here voluntarily, although he is presumably invited right into these conversations, um, he seems voluntarily to be withdrawing himself from that and saying, you know what? I'm going to think happy thoughts instead, right? Um, I am going to just 
spend as much of my time as I can with Bilbo. I am going to remember that that was that that thought that he had, like how he would really rather stay with Bilbo. Right. I don't think that he is here, um, you know, being neglectful of his responsibilities. I think it's I think in general it's a good sign. And yeah, I don't know what Sam is doing in this time besides forgetting to pack rope. Um, yeah, I'm not really sure. Um, if I had to guess, if I had to guess what Sam is doing while he's not packing rope, my answer is memorizing poetry. That, I think. He could also be eating bannocks, and uh, but that, of course, can be done at the same time when memorizes poetry. Um, but yeah, Hall of Fire, totally. Absolutely. Um, yeah, stories from elves, or listening to stories from Bilbo. Yep, yep, I agree. That's exactly, Fort Donald's what I'm thinking, too. Um, I think that he's... Um, uh, we, I think we even see some evidence of this. It is clear that the hobbits don't know the story of Baron and Luthien, right? When Aragorn tells them, they don't seem to know it, right? Um, the way that Sam is going to allude to it later on, Baron now, right? On the stairs of Kirathungal. Um, by that time, it is now a familiar story to him. Um, and we know Sam's response to hearing stories and songs that he likes, right? Um, you know, he still remembers that poem that Bilbo taught him um, you know, about Gilgalad, right? He remembers the beginning of it anyway. Um, his response to... Um, his response, you know, when he hears Gimli's song in Moria, he's going to say, I like that. I would like to learn it. Right. That's Sam's reaction. Right. So um, yeah, JJ was thinking exactly that. Uh, both Chris and JJ just quoted that same thing. That's exactly it. Right. Um, so I think that he is uh, likely to have had that reaction many times a day since he's been in Rivendell. Right. Um, I wonder if he's even been learning any of the Elvish language. I wonder. I wonder. Um, I don't know that we will have any clear evidence that he has begun to do so. Um, but I think it's possible that he could have begun that. Um, but uh, in any case, yes, I think that he's been... Uh, that's, so that's my, that's my guess. Learning poetry. Memorizing poetry is is uh, what I would put my money on. Um, yeah, yeah. It is possible that he is learning from Bilbo. Several people are suggesting that, uh, you know, Bilbo is kind of, uh, you know, taking up Sam's lessons again, that he's taking, that he, Sam, is taking the opportunity to learn from Bilbo. I think that that's possible. The only reason I'm hesitant uh, about that is that I think that he would not, he would be reluctant to intrude upon Frodo's time with Bilbo. Um, he would know how much it meant to Frodo to spend time with Bilbo. And I think that, you know, he would not object to being there. Like, he wouldn't necessarily, I think, feel like he has to leave them alone necessarily. 
but he certainly wouldn't want to monopolize Bilbo's attention. In fact, I bet he would be actively reluctant to do that. My guess. But, um, yeah, yeah. Um, well, we know that Sam wasn't doing exploring Mr. Bilbo's The Hobbit with some elves where they analyze Bilbo's writings one paragraph per night, Trousnake, uh, because they were only there for a few months, right? So how far could they possibly have gotten? Um, <laughs> yeah. I guess if they, you know, they did a marathon version, maybe. Maybe. Um, <laughs> but anyhow. Um, yeah. It is possible, Barthram, it is possible that he's um, uh, been learning some gardening from the elves. I bet you that uh, there there might have been some horticultural talk. It's, I think it's very possible. Um, but yeah, Matt, I wonder if Sam possibly could have learned uh, some stories from the source, right? From Elrond himself. Um, that um, That would take some cheek. You know, I'm not sure that Sam would look that high, but Elrond might. Uh, I, I I could see that. I could see that. Um, you're right, Chris, that uh, it is, you know, like November when they're there. So probably not very much gardening, though they could talk about it, perhaps. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Um, okay. That's my speculation about what was Sam doing besides not packing rope. Um, let's see. He spent as much time as he could with Bilbo. Well, we'll get there. Um, uh, we'll get there next time. That is, Frodo is spending time with Bilbo uh, is what we are. That is a transitional sentence right into our next uh, slide where we continue the theme of elves and swords uh, next week uh, when we return. I will be back next week. I should, unless something goes very much amiss in my return trip from Baymoot, uh, I should be back uh, uh, definitely on Tuesday, so I should be able to see you guys again next week. Um, uh, we, when we will talk about Sting and the gifting of Sting. Uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us for our book talk, and it is field trip time uh, for those of you who are able to stick around for the field trip. And now Valoria's not here today. Uh, Valoria is, is ill, unfortunately, so she couldn't join us today. Um, but um, we will we will still we will still field trip. We were in Gwingris, uh, as I recall. So, um, Druids, I don't know. Can uh, Kiriana do the uh, the the raid sorting? Uh, yes, I can, sir. Thank you. That would be excellent. All right. So Aslan's Compass, we're not we're not actually ending early. We're just ending like closer to on time, which is the unusual thing. Okay. Just gotta make my screen sort itself out here. Okay, all right, and now why we can milestone there because we did that last time. So this time 
we were going to, uh, having explored sort of around the perimeter and looked at the way in which Gwingris was situated, and Gwingris is, um, oh yeah, Kiriana, that's, uh, that's... Yes, Kiriana dances with tentacles. That's it. All right. I think I have everybody. All right. So uh, if you have the milestone, you can use the milestone. If you need to stable master your way there, you can do that by way of Southbury and Rivendell. I'm going to milestone. Yes. One of the unfortunate realities of how they designed the quest is that you can't swift travel to Gwingris or any of the other places in Aregion unless you've done the quest line. Oh, right. That's right. You've got a mithril coin, the quick, the quick travel, unless you've mm-hmm. finished the quests. Yes, I was a, a non-fan of that element in Aregion uh, when I was going through. Same. They, they, um, they ditched that fairly quickly, didn't they? Uh, yeah, for the most part. I, I think they did some of it in Moria still. Mm, right. And okay. JJ is having fun with the pool, which you can fish right. in, by the way. Right, he's splashing in the pool. I love how you can fish in like four inches of water. Um, you can fish in, in the ho- last homely house in the place where the high elves wake up. If you go back in after the intro, you can fish in those things where you meet. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Um... Okay, um, so we were exploring the perimeter and trying to decide why this place was built here and what we could learn from both the situation of this settlement and the exterior of the settlement. And the main thing we saw about the exterior, it is set on this promontory overlooking the river on three sides, which on the one hand is just like this wonderful defensible position that can only be approached from one side, and yet it's clearly not built for defense, because the one side from which you can approach it, uh, it is walled with this huge, just like, um, you know, this arcade of arches, right? It's just, it's it's no, uh, it's not even, there's not even a wall. It's not even like a wall with big windows. It's like, there's more window than wall. It's just, um, uh, this open thing. So clearly this was built um, early on, early in the Second Age, back when the surviving elves who still remained in Middle-earth uh, thought that evil had ended forever. Um, and therefore that its highly defensible position on the promontory overlooking the river gorges on all sides suggests that uh, it was done for the view rather than for any defense, as there seems to be no effort whatsoever to make this place defensible, even at a later time, which is interesting and seems to suggest... And that's, of course, another thing about this. I don't see... Does anybody else see any evidence of 
a later layer of architecture here, that this was later occupied by people who built, you know, in a different style and perhaps for different purposes. Because I don't see that or I haven't I didn't notice anything like that um, at it's first. It's pretty uniform, in my opinion, uh, the same architectural style the entire way. That's what I'm thinking, too. And again, what I would normally be looking for, like the first thing I would look for when I was looking for any such thing would be some kind of defensive structure, right? Like either a wall on the outside of it or a, a wall on the inside even. or <laughs> Exactly. Something, right? There's no um, doors. Nothing even like hinges or anything. Exactly. Right. Yeah. No, there is. I'm not I'm not sure that there were any gates here, even though this is structured. And JJ, I think you pointed this out last week. This is structured almost like a gatehouse. Right. Um, But yet I don't think it was actually designed to be a gatehouse. I don't think there's any evidence that this was a gate. I think that instead of being a gatehouse here, this is just meant to, like, increase the view. Right. Like to. um like when you come in here, you you come here around the corner. Anybody who would come in would be coming in in the full view of anyone who could see out these arches here, and you would still be. I know. I don't know. Like, is there could be a procession through the gates? Like maybe when uh, Celebrimbor and company come to visit up here, right? You know, maybe they kind of process in, and the people who live in Gwingris, you know, might kind of stand around in here. And before these bushes got completely out of control, for instance, and you know, they could stand in here and watch him approaching right through this arch, and then they can see him all the way up, right, as he comes in through the gates or something. Like it looks almost more like that kind of a observation post than gatehouse, exactly. Nothing really practical. There's clearly a second floor, at least in this portion of it. Looks like mm-hmm. there was a floor of some kind. Honestly, I'm thinking the Muppet Show inch opener with all the faces uh, waving at people. Right, right, yeah. Um, a little bit like that. Um, perhaps marginally more dignity than the Muppet Show, um, but only a little bit more dignity. Um, I think the Noldor... With the tra-la-la-la-la-la? Well, see, exactly. Uh, we know that the Noldor uh, were themselves into a good tra la la um, Notice the arches at the top here. That Curved arch inward. Curved inward, right? This was clearly not just a wall, right? Yeah, JJ has posted a, an image of the Muppet Show opening to which you were referring. Uh, each Muppet in a little archway. Yeah, yeah. Um, I... Yes. Yeah, no, Jurors Fire, you're right. I can't unsee that. I think that's exactly what was happening here. (laughs) Sorry. No, 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 it's excellent. It's excellent. I think it's it's perfect. What better symbol of uh, the, you know, the peace of the early Second Age of Middle-earth than the intro to The Muppet Show? Um, But anyway, as we were saying... It arches inward, right? So clearly these were not just walls. This was like a hall of its own here, right? Or an arcade of some kind. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I wonder... Yeah, look at the... Look, the look at the one the dome. on... Yeah, we have... A, we're, I think we have like a meta-dome down here, right? Because those arches were above so there was something that arched over the top above this dome. So this was a dome inside the dome. 
Could this have been like a high seat? Maybe some dignitary? This would be their personal little gazebo, I guess? Yeah, possibly. Or like, you know, maybe from up here you address the crowd, right? Or like maybe this is where where you stand, you know, uh, when you are reciting poetry or whatever. Um, But yeah, I see from this side you can see, in fact, it even... Perhaps that what looks like the gatehouse is merely what's remaining. Maybe it went, that's like, it was a hall that wide, basically, perhaps. Um, yeah, with with the lecture mode, it really sells that imagery of, of a place where yeah. somebody's speaking. Yeah, I think this would work really well for that. You could get a, you could get a whole big... Uh, whole big audience here, right? Exactly, right? And Gilthanian applauding down in the, uh, down the, down in the valley there. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, again, this, this is not, look, it's, yeah. I mean, this is, it's not built for defense. It's not built as a lookout. Uh, I mean, the arches are like really, I mean, you can look out. I mean, it would be quite nice up here just to come up here and think, although you're looking at the inside of a wall over this way. So again, that, once again, suggests it's not designed for looking out. It's designed for looking in. It's designed for, like, standing here, you know, and looking impressive under the little dome, looking out. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. Um, How many structures do we have? We've got a few towers, specifically, right? We were looking at those. Along the edge of the cliff, we were looking at those, right? Um, Mm Mm-hmm. Like, we've got this tower over here, and we've got a couple of the falling down ones. I'm going to try not to fall off the cliff. Please no, don't. Not, not in perfect control of my movements here, so I'll try to be cautious. But, yeah, we've got this mysterious tower with no door and no windows, which I don't know what this one was for. Was it, what is it, a grain silo or something? I, I, don't, I don't, I really understand. Um, it looks like it did have windows, but they've been bricked up. As the door was bricked up, too. There's some story about this tower, right? I mean, clearly. I mean, yeah, the doorway was bricked up as well. I'm thinking, um... Uh, I'm thinking of a, uh, I'm thinking this tower is a sad story behind it. That's what I'm thinking. But they didn't have the heart to tear the tower down. Right, they didn't tear the tower down... But they, like, didn't... Like, it was the tower of, like, a beloved, like, daughter or something who died young. And she used to, like, to go up in this tower and look out. And, like, that was that upper chamber of that tower, which was just... I mean, obviously, it has huge windows on all sides, right? So it was designed for looking out over the gorges and to the uh, the hills beyond, as well as over into the town, right? Um, But then she, like, died young from some tragic reason, and then they were like, we're going to keep the tower, but we're going to brick it up in her memory, and, like, no one shall enter it again, and I don't know. That's the kind of thing that this makes me think of, this bricking up of this tower. Could it be... Not a lady's tower, but maybe Celebrimbor's tower. And then when he was killed, they kind of like, yeah, we don't want to go in there anymore. It's possible. Like, this was his, like, private apartment that was reserved for him. Um, mm-hmm. It's possible. It's possible. I mean, I mean, it's definitely prominent on the edge of the, the ledge here. Yep. Yeah. And, yes, you're right. And it's an unusual shape. I mean, it clearly had a room up there, right? You could have, like, mm-hmm. you went in... And then there would have been spiraling stairs. 
and there's one big room, it seems probably, right, with the windows all round, and then nothing really above it, just a high ceiling because the tower narrows so much that you can't, doesn't seem like there's any reason to go up there. There's no windows or walkway up there or anything. Yeah, there's um, an attic for what? Lembus? Lots of Lembus? I guess. Yeah, you could do that. Um, but, um, yeah, so um, it's possible. Could be Celebrimbor. Could be Celebrimbor. Something um, uh, something of uh, <laughs> Oh, Maria says, yeah, it could yeah. be uh, Anatar's old room. Well, see, the problem is, I don't think Anatar made it up here. I mean, maybe he did. Like, he probably hung out with him for a while. And yeah. The, but this is, we're very far here. We're as far as you get in Eregion from, like, where Celebrimbor and Anatar really hung out, right? So, um, but, you know, that it, that it could have been Anatar's old room is uh, is interesting. As it, that would be a good explanation for the breaking up. Yeah. yeah Amathorn says Anatar, you think though, they might yeah. tear it down. It's possible. It's possible, but... Um, then again, if they would have torn something down just because of the association, they would have torn down the other uh, places like the the school and the and whatnot, you know, the raid spaces, right? And these spaces. Yeah, I mean, if uh, if this were a room set aside for, um, yeah, it's true. Amethorn says unless it was cursed and they didn't want to touch it much. Um, yeah, that's also possible. Though again, that's why I, w- I would think if it were, they would definitely burn it. They would not want to keep it around. Um, you know, they definitely do something, push it over. Um, but, um, yeah, anyway, I don't know. I don't know. But, yeah, there's some kind of story about that tower because it's, it's kind of weird compared to the other towers. It's different. But the other I mean, towers... it's, it's, it's got more defenses against entry than the entire city does. Well, yeah, I mean, in that it only has the one entrance, right? And, I mean, this, look at the... Am I right about this? Because this is very different in style. We don't have the... Yeah. We um, Notice that the tower... Let's just call it Anatar's Tower because that's fun. Um, so Anatar's Tower over there has only up at the very top has the sort of gold filigree on the outside mm-hmm. of the outer stone. Right? But this tower that's fallen down up here... There's a lot of it, with it all over the place. Yeah, inside and out, right? So this is different. It seems a little bigger, too. It seems a little bigger all the way up. Now, it does have a similar door thing here. So I'm not sure what to make of that. But um, It almost seems like it's wood on the... I mean, it looks like a wood grain here on the, the pattern. Like the frame of the door. It looks like wood, oh, the but frame it, it should have rotted. Yeah. Yeah, it should have rotted by now. Hmm. Does it almost just look a, like wood. a brush, brush metal work or something? Yeah, I don't know. It could be a metal. Yeah, exactly. It could be a metal. I mean, there does seem to be metal and stone seems to be the theme with the rest of it. The rest of the. Um, yeah, wood doesn't seem to be like an elven thing. Um, In for some places term. it can be, but yeah, but not here. I don't think we're seeing. Um, it's curious that this bit of fallen tower. I mean, it's got legs like it's a gazebo, but everything above it is completely solid. 
Yeah, I agree. I think maybe. Would weigh a ton. Yeah, solid tower above a pillared structure. Where's the bottom of this? Where did this used to stand? I don't think it's this because this looks like a top of a dome right here. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. What do you think this stuff is? I think it's fake fire. I think this is like gold, worked gold that's designed to look like permanent torches burning along the, around the edges of the dome. That could be a like forge, you know, like, hey, we're going to be building forges, so let's get something that looks like a forge. Maybe. There seems to be an attacked one up here in the corner, though, and it's on the tall pillar base, like, you know, over here that's falling. But just like, there's nothing here. can't even jump into it. I do think that some elves would work with wood. In fact, we know for a fact that many of them did. But um, remember, we're in a Noldoran region here, a uniquely mm -hmm. Noldoran region. Um, and um, I'm not saying that the Noldor would never work with stone, work with uh, wood. But um, uh, they don't seem to have very much, or at least if they have, remember, we're talking 5,000 years ago. It would, it would have, yeah. So. I'm curious yeah. about this, this non-gate here by this mini gazebo of doom is like, there's n literally not, it's like the gate and then shoop, over the edge. Right. This is uh, for, yeah, you want to, you don't want to take a long walk long straw at this door. Now, it's possible that there has been erosion. We discussed that. That's what you I was know, thinking. The possibility was... of something that there used to be maybe a little plane here to do the final lookout, but um, but yeah, it seems almost like a booby trap the way that it's currently set up, which I can't but let's, let's, let's back up from this structure a second because I'm trying to figure out what is this building after all and where was it okay so there was this tower in the corner I'm trying to get up to some kind of altitude here to see okay so there was this tower here in the corner and it fell and there's this hall right it's this large hall that I think stuck out further than the one by the main gate Mm -hmm. And it seems to be this corner thing. It turns a corner. So it's like a an L-shaped, an L-shaped hall with a domed ceiling, right? Yeah, you can um, see part of the dome still standing up. Yeah. Yeah. So the whole thing would have had this indoor-outdoor feel to it, right? Like the whole thing would have been indoors, and yet between the openness of the walls and the openness of the ceilings through those domes. Um, I don't know if there would have been glass. Someone was asking about that. I would guess that that may well be possible. That they did have glass in it. Um, oh yes, Amethorn, you're right. Elrond's library does have glass. Um, so I think that, that that does seem to make it more possible. 
But, but isn't um, part of the last home we house open to the sky? Yes, part of it is. Part of it is. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, yeah, I do think that um, this seems to be the primary structure here. I see what JJ's talking about. Okay, so JJ, There's... show me this tree thing that you're talking about here. Over here in the corner. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh. Huh. Huh. How peculiar. I don't see anything else like it around here. What on earth even is this? It does have that same grain structure kind of things that we were seeing on the door frames that we like we can see right here at the base of this podium which is a right base you know the base of the pedestal the pediment that's the word I'm looking for um yeah but um huh it does look like it's broken off and tumbled down, <clears throat> but broken off of where? Was it a faux tree? Surely not planted here. I mean, there's just flagstones under it. It could have been inside the caged section. I mean, it's currently inside the caged section, but again, where? what could it possibly have fallen from? Yeah, I don't see a place where there would have been a floor. Mm-mm. No, and I don't see... Uh, it's very strange. Right, so do you think it could here. have been inside this tower? Maybe, you know, inside, like under the pillars here. Maybe, maybe. I mean, just because it's sitting over there now doesn't mean that it landed here organically and has stayed in that one spot for 5,000 years. Um, so, sure, it could have been somehow moved or something. Um, yeah, hmm. Uh, no, my biggest problem is not with like the location but like what was it a tree I don't think it was a tree I really don't here's why I don't think this was a tree because it doesn't look like a tree I mean look at it's square like the trunk is squared like a beam right I mean it would have been a very stylized tree if it were a tree you see what I mean I mean Mm mm-hmm it does not there's no verisimilitude here so either they were stylistically going for abstract suggestion of tree or it's a badly carved tree and the latter of or course or they maybe they just accept. started carving it when things went awry <laughs> perhaps he died while carving it um uh it's possible i think It could be any number of other things. 
besides a tree. And I don't see anything it could be attached to either. Nor do I see anything like it embedded in or attached to any part of the existing structure. Um, somebody said there was something down to the south. There's also statues over here. Oh, yeah. Hang on. I meant to look at those. Uh, oh. Right, we've got the not the not Gilgalad statue. Who did we decide this was? Did we decide this was Kierden. Well, if you assume elves don't have pointed ears, then um, it could be Kierden. Well, Except, he could have yeah. pointed ears. They just don't have to be. I mean, look, I know World of Warcraft has elves that have ears stick out three feet either side of their head, <laughs> but you know. Your ears can be pointed without being eight feet long, you know. So. True, but the statue's ears are, in my view, decidedly human appearing. Well, it doesn't have any ears. Which one? This one? The one on the ground, the broken one. Oh, the broken one. I'm not looking at the broken one. I see. I'm those sorry. ears. No, I was, yeah, sorry, I was looking at tell. the dude with the mace. I don't think it's cured. I don't think it's cured. I don't think it, it's definitely not Gilgalad because he doesn't have a spear. Um... Uh, Could it be Celebrimbor? No, Celebrimbor. So, well, okay. Normally, Celebrimbor is depicted with a with a hammer, right? And Gilgalad is depicted with his spear. Not to mention, I would want to see some uh, uh, stars on his shield, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't see it being anybody but an elf, though, because this is an elf yeah, place with elf stuff it's, and everything. I think, I think it's an elf. Um, I I don't think the fact that it's not bearded doesn't mean it's not cured. And he could have, he could have been in a a pre beard stage. So this that is, the, is actually this known. is totally a pointed ear, by the way. That ear is absolutely pointed, right there. There's a point right there. It comes to a literal point. There it is. A point. See, again, like, it just depends on your standards for pointiness. But this is a beard. So this is Kierden. This has got a beard. Yeah, he, he would have to be simply because he's the only known... Well, there's another bearded elf, yeah? Well... But... Whether Standing Stone could use that personage is another question. I mean, they're they're clever about including stuff from the stuff that they're not allowed to name, but I, I think something like that they would probably get yelled at. Okay, but hang on a second. Here's another question. Why mm-hmm. would there be any... Why would there be Last Alliance era statues? Because this is all because this way place would have fallen, yeah, long before that, long before that. And also, Kierden didn't have a beard all that much at the Last Alliance. Not as far as we know. No, I'm referring to ah. the in-game to 
I know. Oh, the in-game depiction. Yeah. The in-game yeah. You, you get to you get to meet him. Right. Right. Yes. Twice, in fact. Right. 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 Uh, JJ thinks it's Galdor growing out his beard in imitation of Kyrdin. Uh, also very possible. Very possible. Um, did they make statues of Valar? Yes, but not like this. Um, I do believe that Elbereth is depicted in that statue in uh, Rivendell, but again, it's like a statue on a whole different order of magnitude. Than the, it's not just like Statue of Luthien, statue of Gilgalad, statue of Elbereth standing next to each other. You know what I mean? I mean, how do you make a a finite statue of an infinite being? Well, they're not infinite, just huge. Well, but, uh, well still. I'm thinking in terms of still. less corporeal. Certainly, from a uh, from a the point of view of Arda, yeah. Um, I have yeah. to give Barthram some props because he's a level 23 who made it here. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Okay, um, where was that other um, that other thing? We're running out of time. Hang on, is this the way up to? I'm I'm disoriented now. Uh, is this the way? Is this the same thing that we were looking at? But no, this is a different hall that we were. No, is this the same? This is a different hall. This is a different hall with the same. This more more tree thing like thing in it yeah now the real money shot would be any glimpse of anywhere in the standing part of the ruins that give any hint as to what on earth this could have come from or where it could have been not a blessed clue me neither I mean, I don't even see anywhere they'd have, like, a second floor. You mean the like, actual floor? Be... Yeah. Yeah, I don't see, like, because, like, in the corners, you know, the, the diagonal portions of the corners, they have these other galleries and these windows come down. And there's no space to put a floor anywhere. Agreed. Agreed. Nor do we see any corbels or anything like that sticking out of the mm-hmm. walls that would suggest there used to be a wooden floor. So this is, um, like, a vaulted hall. Yeah, which would seem to fit. I mean, uh, as we, as Valori was pointing out, this fits um, stylistically like the party houses we were seeing in Erin mm-hmm. Lewin. Um, and also, I mean, the whole thing is like, speak friend and enter. This was a time of deep peace, not just like, oh, hey, we're just in between... We're in an interregnum between wars. This is like, oh, yeah, yeah. hey, we're at peace for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Indefinite There's no defenses. Peace. Yeah, exactly. They thought so, evil was defeated permanently. Right, right. And now we've got another... Oh, hey, look. Which... Another wonder, one of the... Is this like the... Hmm. Wait a minute. This has like a, a walkway or a chute... Which does? When you're looking at... Uh, oh, yeah. Walkway yeah. or shoot? Yeah. From the second oh. floor of the dome. Yeah. It's like there's... There's like a... I, 
Yeah, Honestly, it looks like a little right doghouse at the top of the thing and a little walkway for the pets to come down. Which was slanting down. It's uh-huh. like the the gazebo in the far corner, but mm-hmm. with a very differently sloping, different angle and different slope on the... Um, um, but it than is... the other one. Yeah. Oh, I see. It. The dome itself would have been... I'm just glancing at the one down the way. The dome itself has that little half half arch above it. Mm-hmm. So maybe there was like a light or something put up there? Maybe. And nice now, it's up on pillars. Up. It's up on pillars, pillars so that it doesn't... Con- so that it doesn't... Um, I mean, the whole central dome, mm-hmm. little mini dome there, is up on pillars so that it doesn't block the ground level view out through the front windows there, front arches. Right. Um, yeah. I feel like I'm in Castle Care Paravel. I think... I think that maybe that was a um, little, uh, little private guest bedroom suite. That's what I'm thinking. Because it looks private. It's, fill, it's filled in solidly. It doesn't have windows all around it, which is unusual around here, right? Um, and the slope, it doesn't have the outward-facing... outward. I mean, inward, I guess. Inward towards the town. But outward from the dome, right? There's just this one little it arch. It parallels the dome. It parallels or it, but it's wall, structured very differently, right? It's not... Um, it's not an open gazebo look where you can look out on all sides. It's a solid dome of stone um, with just a little door in it. Um, no, actually, it's the gazebo. It, it's got pillars that look like it's collapsed. Like if you come further away from it, you can you can see those uh, pillars broken up. Oh, I see. Definitely not the the. Uh, the king's oh. doghouse. Okay. So it did have a gazebo, and it fell. It just yeah. fell in on itself. I see. But it's still at a different... The, the, path, the walkway the is still different. Is yeah. yeah. And the, that it that is still very different. Maybe there was a reason for it. Maybe it's just how this hill is built. It they I don't know. Maybe they borrowed the dwarvish foreman from up north. What, the one who does things crookedly? Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't think so. I don't think these guys borrowed that much from the dwarves. Okay. So, it's fun to imagine what the different functions of these other buildings, and we've kind of skipped this other dome, the one that's still currently semi-occupied. This is the biggest gazebo over here. Again, looking like it was just open. One story, big open dome in here. Um, and could it be a meeting room of some kind? Everybody just come in from the various doors and yeah, say, but say I mean, their piece and whatnot? That's exactly the kind of thing like 
I've got to think that there's just like different kinds of parties and gatherings that you have in these different buildings, right? Like we've got the one uh, relatively cozy but spacious, right, big dome thing here, right, which might have been nice for like poetry readings or something. The acoustics were probably good inside here back in the day, right? Um, And then you'd have, you know, like out here on the lawn from the gazebo for... Uh, you know, from that gazebo up in the corner for, like, public speeches uh, and things, right? Um, and then, you know, you have, like, your dance parties up here in the rectangular building over here, right? Like, this is the ballroom. This uh, should be a place for food, of course. Yeah, yeah. So this is, like, the ballroom up here, right? And then through... Then the biggest building of all, right, the one up in the northern side here, the one, the corner building, which is so huge, um, this would have been the primary. This Maybe this was where they lived? They had living quarters Possibly. in here? Something like that? Um, That's always been the hard part is... A lot, and this is more of a video game thing than I think about it in terms of how they build this. Game designers don't think about where do people live and sleep and stuff for, for the most part, unless it's something that's needed for a quest. Well, often it's true. Uh, but, um, yes. But I could imagine that they lived in here. This is large enough for apartments of some kind. Mm-hmm. And also, let's not forget that they also very likely would have been, like, wandering about. Um, You know, I don't know, Nancy, how much sleep they needed, right? Um, Well, it's like uh, Legolas wasn't sleeping while the the party was going, company was traveling south. He was just standing there singing in some kind of Elvish dream. Right, right, exactly. His famous discussion of Elvish dreams. So, um, um... yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and then you've got your really shallow, you know, pool Fish pond. in the middle. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but however we imagine Elrond's kiddie pool. Yeah, it is like a kiddie pool. It is a kiddie pool. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Um, yeah, so, but it really does have uh, all of the elements of just a pleasure place, right? This mm-hmm. is just this is... various places even... where they had fun in different ways. Yeah, I don't see anything that would say, oh my gosh, we're actually making anything here. That there's a function. This is all form. It's totally not function at all. Right. Beyond, hey, this is this is like the the pure at Bristol or something. Right. Sorry, I'm uh, adding my kitty to the pool. There we go, as JJ suggested. Okay. Um, yeah. No, I think that's just what we. I think that's just what we see here. Now it truly okay. is a kitty pool. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No, it's definitely <laughs> a kiddie pool. 
We are terrible people sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, all right, good. Well, what what I'll be interested to see is what differences, if any, we can see. Are there just going to be other, um, you know, the other spots that we can find around, um, uh, you know, around through Oregon? Are they just going to be other spots like this, like... Let's build party spots in other locations. Are we going to be able to tell any kind of differences in, you know, their intentions and why and where they built things? So we will see. Um, um, we will see what we see as we move around. How we're going to move around. We can meet. We can start back again at Gwingris, but I guess we should just kind of explore through this area uh, and see what we find here. We will avoid. Um, I guess we can go down to this other city over here, or this other in this in the direction of this other ruin that's on the map mm-hmm. south of the Holland Ridge. Um, again, we have to avoid any specific narrative areas, so we won't go up in this direction, uh, and we won't go, of course, down towards the Redhorn Pass or anywhere near the Wolf Hill yet. Um, but I think we can still, through High Holland here, be focusing and then head down. So we'll we'll kind of hug the uh, the western side of Aragian to begin with, and then we'll fill in the rest as we continue through. All right, um, very good. We should probably go. We're late now, having having gotten to our field trip closer to on time. Mm-hmm. Now we're late, but uh, that was fun looking through Gwingers this evening. Thanks, everybody, for joining us, and we will see you guys next week for more Oregian exploration. Thanks, everybody. Bye now. Bye.